0: Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you being here with us this morning on this really beautiful Sunday after a lot of rain as of late. But speaking of beautiful Sundays, last weekend marked the unofficial beginning of summer, Memorial Day weekend. Yes, yes. And as we all know, we're all grateful, I'm sure, Don is grateful, that most of the kids are done with school the pools are open, the grills are warm, and it's that time of year when we count down the days to our vacations. Or if we're not going on vacation, we look with jealousy at the pictures that other people post from their vacations. Well, if you can't afford a trip to some beautiful destination this summer, we here at Prairie View Christian Church are happy to offer something almost as exotic. We're talking about a summer in Rome through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. We'll be spending the next 13 Sundays, so all of June, all of July, and all of August, reading the book of Romans. It might not be as good as a real vacation, but on the bright side, I won't be taking my shirt off. So, now we Christians believe that all of the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament, We believe it is all God's inspired, authoritative word. And while it may be more obvious in some parts of the Bible than others, we believe that all of Scripture is helpful to believers in one way or another, at one different time or another. However, it's also hard to deny the unique importance of the book of Romans. Some would argue that Romans is the most influential book of the entire New Testament, if not the entire Bible. I mean, if not for the book of Romans, the Reformation may have never happened the way it did. And the history of the church, and really the history of the entire world, would be very different. Many Christians say that Romans is the first book they read after they became a believer in Jesus. And some Christians might even tell you that when they started the book of Romans, they didn't believe in Jesus. But by the time they got to the end, they knew without a doubt that Jesus is Lord. Some of our favorite verses come from this book. Romans 3, 23 through 25 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation We'll talk about that word here in a few weeks whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood To be received by faith. Another favorite verse, Romans 5 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And Romans 6 23, one that many of us know very well. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if there's one person who loved the book of Romans, maybe more than anyone else, it's Martin Luther. He referred to Romans as the purest gospel, the purest gospel. He then said that Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart. Anybody here know Romans word for word, by heart? Martin Luther would not be pleased with you. Every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. More theologians once said that if it is a historical fact, the spiritual revivals of the Christian faith have been usually associated with the closer study of the Bible, which, yes, they have, this would be true in an imminent degree of the book of Romans, And then one final theologian said, there is no telling what may happen when people begin to study the book of Romans. Who knows what could happen here this summer as we study this incredibly important book together, starting with an introduction this morning. So open up to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, Let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to do the things that Christians do on Sunday mornings. Uh, Again, it might seem routine. uh, It might seem uneventful. It might seem boring even just on a regular old Sunday in the middle of the summer uh, to gather here and worship. But I pray that we would never lose sight of what exactly it is that we're doing when we gather here to worship you. I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that we could not even dare come into your presence if not for what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. We could not call you our father in the truest and fullest sense of the term if not for what Christ has done for us. And yet here we are every single Sunday worshiping you and speaking with you and singing to you knowing that we are on good terms with you, knowing that we are in good standing with you, the creator of the universe, because of what your son has done for us. May we never lose sight of that fact. And Father, be with us this summer as we read the book of Romans, starting today. I pray that it would be beneficial and upbuilding for us as individuals, for us as a church, and that our study and our reading and our learning would be guided by your spirit would be guided by your word and would ultimately bring you glory and that through studying this book we would be more eager and more joyfully worshiping you and your son jesus christ again we love you we glorify you we ask this all in christ's name amen well as we typically do when we start a new book of the bible i'd like to give a little bit of background to kind of set the scene for what exactly we're reading So the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, likely sometime around 56 A.D. So we're talking 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And based on what we can piece together from the book of Romans itself, and then also from the book of Acts, we can gather that Paul was likely staying in the city of Corinth when he wrote Romans. And one of the things that makes Romans so unique is that Paul did not start the church in Rome. Most of the churches that Paul wrote to, he had been involved with that church's founding. But that's not the case in Romans. In fact, Paul may have never even stepped foot in Rome since he became a believer in Jesus and had probably never met any of the Christians who lived there. But then on top of that, the Christians in Rome who received this letter we were facing some particular challenges. For example, they dealt with formal opposition from those in power in Rome. A few years before Paul wrote Romans, the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from the city of Rome, some of them being Christians. And he expelled them because of their disputes about Jesus. He got tired of hearing them argue, so he kicked them out. But then the next emperor... A guy by the name of Nero, who was infamous in many different ways. Nero levied harsh taxes against Christians. And legend has it that he blamed the Christians for starting the fire that destroyed much of the city, even though he actually started it himself. So there is official opposition from those in power in the most powerful city in the world against these believers. But then on top of that, the Christians there also faced informal social alienation from those around them. Many Roman citizens viewed Christians with suspicion or even disdain due to their strange beliefs and strange practices. Rumors were spread that when Christians gathered together on Sunday mornings, they were having orgies and practicing cannibalism, neither of which has ever happened here in my tenure. You can laugh. And the Romans worried that these Christians might make the Roman gods angry by their refusal to offer sacrifices to them. Roman citizens were confused by the Christians' claim that there was only one true God. Again, these people viewed Christians with suspicion at best and maybe even disdain at worst. And then the Christians in Rome had to deal with their own inner turmoil, their own division inside the church. Jewish and Gentile Christians didn't always see eye to eye. And they struggled to understand, they struggled to live out the truth that they were all one in Christ Jesus, despite their cultural and ethnic differences. They weren't even a single united church when Paul wrote to them. They were split up into different factions meeting at separate parts of the city. So these Christians are dealing with all of these unique challenges all while living in the largest and most influential city in the world with all the blessings and all the curses, all the virtues and all the vices that came along with it. And then right in the middle of all this, the mailman knocks on the door, And he's carrying this long and complex letter from some guy named Paul. A guy they had likely heard about, but didn't know very well personally. So Paul introduces himself. He introduces his gospel to them. You'll hear the word gospel quite a bit in the book of Romans. He starts teaching on hot-button doctrinal issues. But he also addresses more pastoral and practical concerns. So this long letter of the book of Romans is all over the board. It's about both teaching and practice, both high-minded theology, as well as everyday life. It's relevant to both groups and individuals, to Jews and to Gentiles, to men and to women, to rich and to poor. This book is both timeless and universal, but also very specific and contextual. But before we actually read the book of Romans, just one more question. How in the world did Paul get here? How in the world did Paul get here? I mean, how is it that the guy who once made a living watching Christians die, the guy who once eagerly volunteered to chase them down, accuse them of blasphemy, and throw them in jail, The guy who was once completely convinced that Jesus was a fraud, corrupting the people of God to the point of idolatry. How is it that this guy, of all people, would end up writing such a brilliant book, beloved by Christians of all stripes throughout the ages? How did Paul get here? But one day Paul was knocked off his horse, and he met the risen Christ himself. He was blind for three days, didn't eat or drink, probably in shock over what he had seen and heard. But then he was baptized by a man named Ananias, and Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that point forward, everything was different for Paul. And as we see early in Romans, what we'll read this morning, from that moment on, Paul had a new identity. He had a new master. He had a new mission and he had a new message. So let's start by looking at Paul's new identity, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So as Paul begins this letter, he uses several interesting words to describe himself. First, he calls himself a servant. An even better word there would be slave. Now, in our day and age, we don't exactly consider being a slave to be a good or desirable thing. But Paul does not use the term slave with a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment. He uses it with joy. Because for Paul, being a slave of Christ Jesus is not a burden, it is a privilege. Paul happily embraces the truth that he now exists for one reason above everything else, and that is to serve his Lord. He has a new identity as a slave, a servant of Christ. But then Paul also describes himself as an apostle. Now, in the technical sense, an apostle is someone who spent time with Jesus before he died. Paul is the biggest, most notable exception to that rule in the New Testament. But then in a more general sense, an apostle is a messenger, someone who has a word to share. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. And then finally, Paul describes himself as set apart for the gospel of God. It's important to note that this new identity is not something that Paul just decided to choose for himself. God called him to this. God set him apart for this. Paul was born for this. Paul didn't just wake up and decide to pursue a new hobby. He didn't just have an intellectual change of beliefs. He didn't just embrace a new worldview because he thought it made more sense than the old one. Paul has a new identity from the inside out. Paul has been called and set apart by God himself. Because of Jesus, Paul is no longer the person he once was. He has an entirely new identity. But then we also see Paul's new master. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 2. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, And was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong in Jesus Christ to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul introduced himself, and that's pretty important when you're meeting a stranger. But more importantly, he now introduces his new master, Jesus Christ. The one who gave him this new identity. Slave, servant, apostle, called out for the gospel of God. Now, this new master is the one that the prophets of the Old Testament all looked forward to, whether they realized it or not. He's the descendant of David who will reign on an eternal throne. He's the Son of God, risen from the dead, our Lord. And in Paul's mind, everything from now on revolves around Jesus. And you know, for Paul, Jesus isn't just his master. He is the rightful master, ruler, king, lord of everyone and everything, even if they don't all honor him as such. All the nations are being summoned to give Jesus the worship, the service, the obedience of faith that he deserves. And who's going to make sure everyone knows that? Whose mission is that? Well, who else's? It's Paul's mission. And that's what we start to see in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So there are several very practical reasons that Paul's mission from God goes straight through Rome. Number one, Paul has heard lots of good things about the Christians in Rome, and he wants to develop a relationship with them. He wants to do ministry with them. He wants to encourage them and he wants them to return the favor. He's optimistic that they can do great ministry together, that they can bear much fruit, that they can bring in a harvest. In a way, the letter of Romans is Paul's less, less icky New Testament version of what we would call networking. You meet with someone, you try to establish some common ground, you have a shared mission, and you want to help each other out. That's what Paul's doing here. On top of that, Paul has a desire to go to Spain. We learn that later in the book. And Rome is a natural pit stop. It's centrally located between Jerusalem, Paul's next destination after he writes Romans, and Spain, which is his long-term goal. But then most of all, Paul's mission runs through Rome. He is insistent on coming to Rome because of what was said in verse 8 that the Roman's faith is proclaimed in all the world. All the world. Rome was the capital capital of the most powerful empire in the world, and it had tentacles stretching in every single direction. If you could get to Rome, you could get to almost anywhere from there. There was an old saying that all roads lead to Rome. So if Paul can get his gospel there, It's only a matter of time before it spreads everywhere. If Paul can preach the good news in Rome, his mission that all the nations might come to the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name, if Paul can get to Rome, then that mission is one big step closer to reality. His mission runs straight through Rome. And that's why he wants to go there so badly. So again, to recap what we've learned, how is it that Paul, the former persecutor of Christians, would come to write arguably the most important book of the New Testament? Well, number one, he was given a new identity, a slave of Christ, an apostle called and set apart for the gospel of God. The man once filled with hatred for Jesus and hatred for his followers has been shown grace, has been filled with the Holy Spirit. He has a new identity. But he also has a new master, the one the prophets looked forward to, the descendant of David, the son of God, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ. And Paul also has a new mission, to bring all the nations to the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ. And that mission runs straight through Rome. But as we get our feet wet this morning in Romans, there's one more thing we need to talk about in a little bit more detail. And that is Paul's new message. We see it in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Many have argued that these two verses are the theme, the thesis of the entire book of Romans. Specifically, that phrase, the righteousness of God, gets a lot of attention. Now, what exactly does Paul mean when he says the righteousness of God? Well, that can mean more than one thing throughout the Bible. It could refer to the fact that God himself is righteous. He's holy. He's perfect. He's good. That's a no-brainer for someone like Paul. But it can also refer to God's righteous actions to redeem his people. The truth that God faithfully keeps his word. God faithfully loves his people, saves his people time and time and time again. But in the book of Romans, that phrase, the righteousness of God, seems to mean one thing above all else. It's this idea that Righteousness is a gift from God, given to sinners by faith in Jesus Christ. It's this core gospel idea that we don't have the righteousness necessary for salvation in and of ourselves. And yet God has graciously declared that those who believe in Jesus Christ are righteous. We are given the righteousness of God by grace Through faith. And Paul believes that this message, this righteousness of God, this gospel, this good news is nothing to be ashamed of. It is the power of salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. It is for all those who believe, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every skin color, every walk of life, Jew and Gentile alike. This is not something to be ashamed of. This is good news that everyone needs to hear. I mean, Paul's entire existence, his identity, his mission, his message, all revolve around this good news. They all revolve around his master, Jesus Christ, the one whose life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for the salvation of all who believe. Why in the world would Paul be ashamed of this? Why in the world would we be ashamed of it? That God is graciously declaring sinners righteous. That God is graciously saving sinners because of what Christ has done on their behalf. Why in the world would Paul be ashamed of that? He's not. And you know, even though Paul is dead and gone, every bit of his message is still true today. Some 2,000 years after Romans was written, all the nations are still being summoned to the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus Christ. All the nations are still in need of a righteousness that we do not have and that we cannot produce. All of the nations are still dependent upon the power of God for salvation. And all of the nations are still invited to live by faith In Jesus Christ. So if you aren't a believer in Christ, I pray that you would place your faith in Him, that you would believe the gospel, because it is still the power of salvation to everyone who does believe. You can be saved by grace through faith. And if you're already a believer in Christ, remember that, like Paul, you have a new identity, you have a new master. You have a new mission, and you have a new message to share. You too are called to follow in Paul's footsteps, to not be ashamed of the gospel, the power of salvation for everyone who believes, whether that person is a first-century Roman or a 21st-century American, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a coworker. All the nations are called, invited, To place their faith in Christ. Now, you may not claim the title apostle, and you may not be as brilliant of a theologian and writer as Paul was, but you have the same Spirit living in you who lived in him. You have the same Spirit living in you who lived in him. So may we not be ashamed of the gospel, may we refuse to be ashamed of the gospel. And may we share it with all of the nations who God puts in our path. Now, as we close today, I found myself wondering, and throughout this week I found myself wondering, is there a place for a book like Romans in our world today? And the reason I ask is that because these days, most people think faith or religion, whatever you want to call it, might be a perfectly harmless or perhaps even healthy, beneficial thing. It's good, it's healthy, it's beneficial, as long as you don't get too weird about it. As long as you don't get too preachy about it. Faith, religion, it's all well and good as long as you focus on being nice to people, loving your neighbor, serving the poor, not being judgmental, you know, stuff like that. If that's what we're talking about, faith is great. Religion is okay. But when you start talking about the stuff that Paul talks about, in Romans, that he's talked about today, that he's going to continue talking about for 15 more chapters. When you start insisting that Jesus is the Son of God, risen from the dead, and that all nations are summoned to the obedience of faith in his name, when you start insisting that the gospel alone is the power of salvation, that mankind is sinful and deserving of judgment in desperate need of a righteousness that we don't have and we can't muster up, If you start talking about that stuff, then you might get some stares. Just stick with loving your neighbor. Just stick with being nice. Just stick with not being judgmental. Just stick with the charity and the generosity and the good deeds, all those kinds of things. If you stick with that stuff, you're good. But don't talk to us about salvation and faith and judgment and sin and reward and punishment and heaven and hell. That stuff's just kind of weird. But that's the stuff that Romans is all about. Because that's the stuff of the gospel. Does everything else matter? Of course it does. But that's the stuff of the gospel. And I pray that by reading Romans this summer, we would come to understand that gospel better, that we would believe it with more confidence that we would treasure it with more joy, that we would share it with more urgency, and that we would never be ashamed of it. Because back then, it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And to this very day, it's still the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. May we not be ashamed of it. May we embrace it. May we believe it. May we share it for the good of those around us, and for the glory of God, who deserves all the glory in creation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 thank you that we had the opportunity this morning to get our feet wet, to read a little bit about what Paul is writing, and to get even just the briefest introduction, just to scratch the surface of your grace, that you, in your grace, in your kindness, in your mercy, through what your Son has done for us on the cross, that you declare sinners to be righteous, that you save us that you love us, that you call us, that you set us apart for you and for your son. Father, thank you that the same spirit who lived in Paul lives in all of us. I pray that we would have that same urgency that Paul had, that we would have that same faith that Paul had, that we would have that same desire to share your gospel with all the nations that Paul had. Father, I pray that we would be gospel people, that we would be shaped and transformed and moved and motivated by the good news that we read about in Romans, the good news we read about in the rest of your word as well. I pray that our identities would revolve around Jesus Christ, that we would serve him and worship him and follow him as our master, that our mission to serve him and love him and worship him would take precedence over every other priority in this life, and I pray that we would have a message worth sharing, and that we would share it generously and joyfully, that we would shout it from the rooftops, the way Paul is in the book of Romans. Father, again, help us to be not ashamed of the gospel, because it is your power for our salvation, and it is your power for the salvation of the world. May we not be ashamed of it. May we share it joyfully. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for Christ who died and rose and ascended and will return. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.